relationships are some of the most important aspects of our lives. In fact, I think I can suggest to you that one of the first things we ever learn about in our lives and one of the first things that we ever teach about in our lives is relationships. I don't know how many times I've taken little Trina and held her up and looked at her and pointed to myself and said, Daddy? Daddy? And I'll look at her as I'm holding her and I'll say, Say, I love Daddy. Or I'll point at Tessa and I'll say, Who's this? This is Tessa. Who's this? Pointing to Ethan. This is Ethan. Who's this? This is Ryan. Who's that? That's Mommy. What are we teaching there? The fundamentals of relationships. But far more important than the relationships that we have within the family, mom and dad, brothers and sisters, parent and child, is the relationship that we need to learn about with our God. We have, or should have, a relationship with God. And recently, when I was down in Tampa, Florida, I was able to peruse a little book called Discipleship 101 by Ken Welliver, and he had a little statement in there about the relationships that we have with our God based upon the prayer that we read this week in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. I hope that you've been keeping up with our Give Attention to Reading plan. For our guests here at Franklin, we've been going through the New Testament over a six-month period, and this past week we read Matthew's, Matthew chapters 1 through 10. And within that, we read this prayer. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There are several pictures found within this prayer about the kind of relationships that we have with God. And I want us to go through it step by step and look at the picture that it provides for us. But one of the things I want to share with you before we actually get into that is that, that each statement provides a little bit different aspect. It provides a different picture. And I think one of the problems that we often have is that we'll grasp hold of one picture and we'll take it to the nth degree and forget about the other pictures that are there. In fact, sometimes we might think that some of the pictures are actually contradictory, and that's just not the case. I hope what we can learn from this is that God has provided different pictures to demonstrate different aspects of our relationship with Him, and we need to hold all of them in our minds all at the same time. And I hope that we can look at these different pictures and learn about our relationship with God. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we praise your name because you are awesome and powerful. You are the great God. You are our Father in heaven. You are our King. And we pray that you would help us to submit to you, to be the children, to follow your example, to follow your lead. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us to live as your Son lived on this earth. Father, we have sinned and we ask that you please forgive us. Help us to turn away from those sins, to overcome them, to turn away from the tempter, to be released from captivity in Him. And we're thankful for the deliverance You've offered us through Your Son. 
Father, we love you and we thank you so much for loving us. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. Obviously, the very first picture that he provides for us is that he is our Father in heaven. He is the Father and we are the children. And there's no doubt several aspects of this relationship that we could talk about that would overlap with some of the other relationships we're going to note. We could talk about authority and submission. We could talk about obedience and service. But one of the things that I, or two things that I want us to note here that are distinct to this relationship of father and child. And that's the issue of origin and the issue of love. When we talk about origin, the fact that God is our Father demonstrates that we have come from Him. He is our Father. Without Him, there could be no us. As it is without our parents, there could be no us. But when we consider this concept of Father, I want you to notice this is more than Creator. God was not some mad scientist who put the pieces together and then zapped it to life with a bolt of lightning. He was our Procreator. And when we think about procreation, we recognize that as we are born from our parents, there's a little bit of our parents in us. And so when we talk about God as our Father, it is much more than just creation. It is that procreation. We originate from Him, and there is some of Him in us. In Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. God had created the animals, but when He got to the point of creating man, in verse 26 He said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In verse 27 of Genesis 1, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. We are made in the image of our Father. There is some of our Father inside of us. And I believe that that is a reference to the spiritual part of us. The fact that we are not just flesh and bones, but we are spiritual creatures housed in these fleshly bodies. And the other aspect of that image is just what he said here, that we have dominion over the world. As God has dominion and authority over creation, He has granted that to us, Psalm 8 talks about that and how amazing that is, that God, as powerful as He is, has made us a little bit lower than the angels. In verse 5 of Psalm 8, it says, You have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. You have given Him dominion over the works of your hands, and you put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord! How majestic is your name in all the earth. This is our Father. And there is some of Him in us because we originate from Him. But the second aspect of this relationship of father and child is the aspect of love. The aspect of care and concern. Our God in heaven is not some mean, malevolent, malevolent monarch. He's a loving Father who cares about us. And as we consider that relationship, we need to have that picture in our minds of, of a father holding his child. I can't help but think about Dan and Luke. You ever seen Dan holding Luke? And now don't use me as an example because this question I'm about to ask, you say, yeah, I've seen Evan hold, hold Trina like that. But have you ever seen Dan just holding Trina out by the ankle? Dangling her around? Uh, Luke. He's never held, have you held Trina, Dan? Maybe once or twice? I don't know. 
held loose by the ankle, just dangling him around. No, you know, we want to protect and hold and care. That's our Father. That's the picture we need to have, that care and concern. First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 7 talks about our God and why we can go to Him and why we can cast our anxieties upon Him and why we can share our troubles with Him. And in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, it says, Casting all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. We cannot pray to God because He is our King. We cannot pray to God because He is uh, the Master. Now, those are reasons we should pray to Him, but that's not why we can pray to Him. That's not why we are allowed to pray to Him. We can pray to Him because He cares for us. That's why He allows it. Because He is our Father. How do we improve that relationship? As we look at all these pictures, I want us to think today about improving each one of these relationships that we have with God. If we're going to improve our parent-child relationship, our father-child relationship with Him, we do that by acting the part of the child. Now, I don't mean by that that we act childishly. I mean we act the part of the child. Isn't that what Jesus was telling us in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44? In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44 when He said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. As the Son growing up emulates and follows the Father, that is exactly what we must do. We must act the part of the child trying to be like the Father. The more that we are like Him, the more we demonstrate that we are His children. The less that we are like Him, the more that we demonstrate we've chosen a different Father. John chapter 8 and verse 44 provides that warning. In John chapter 8 and verse 44, as Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees, He says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. The more we're like God, we show that he is our father. The less we're like him, we show that we have a different father. The father of lies and murder. If we want to improve this relationship, we need to follow the advice that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew chapter 21 and verse 22, as he had been questioned about the poll tax, excuse me, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 21, when he had been asked about the poll tax, he asked whose likeness and inscription is on the denarius. And they said Caesar's. And then he said, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The denarius belonged to Caesar because on it was the image of Caesar. The image of God is in us, and so we must give ourselves to God if we want to improve this relationship. But Jesus continued in His prayer. He said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. He is God, and we are the worshiper. His power as God is extreme. His place as God is magnificent. And in His presence, we can do nothing but marvel. Because as worshipers, we must show that He is worthy and we are not. Revelation chapter 4 provides a great picture of worship. As kings cast their crowns 
kings took from their heads their symbols of worthiness and threw it at the feet of the magnificent and marvelous God to demonstrate His worthiness. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 9 it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created. We need to remember that God is God and we are not. He is God. We are the worshiper. We are the ones that must praise. We are the ones that must be thankful. We are the ones that must confess. And as we are coming to His presence to do all of these things, we must not make the mistake of the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, as though when we come into God's presence, it's so that we can receive thanks. That's almost the picture you get from the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 and verse 11, standing by himself and praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He says the word, thank you to God, but what you hear from the prayer is, thank me, O God. We must not worship God in that way. God is the one who is worthy. And First Peter chapter 5 and verse 6 points out that we must humble ourselves, therefore, under the almighty hand of God, so that the proper time He may exalt us. He is God, and we are the worshiper. If we want to improve this relationship, we need to follow what Jesus taught the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. In John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, He said, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We need to work on those two facets of worship. We need to worship from spirit. The idea is that worship is not just outward motions. Worship is not just going through certain actions and checking them off the list. Worship is our spirit coming into the presence of God and humbling itself before God. Bow, excuse me, bowing down, prostrating ourselves before Him to demonstrate His worth. It's not just about the outside. It's about what's going on in the heart. Worship is not about fleshly entertainment. It's not about filling our desires. It's about casting our spirit before God and proclaiming He is worthy. But it also must be by in truth. In truth, that deals with two separate issues. Number one, sincerely. If we're going to worship God in truth, there has to be sincerity. Again, it's not just going through the outward motions, but our heart being someplace else. It's that what we're doing demonstrates that we do and are, that we do love and are singly devoted to God. But the other aspect of that is doing it the way God wants. Following the truth that God has established. In John 17, 17, Jesus prayed, as Kenny read just moments ago, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. If we're going to improve our relationship with God as worshipers, then we're going to have to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus continued by saying, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is the king. We are the subjects. This is tough for us as Americans. I, I mean, for time out loud, we, we fought a war to get rid of kings, didn't we? We wanted to throw off their tyranny and their monarchy. We want a government that's of the people, by the people, and for the people. We want government that, that only governs with the consent of the governed. But that's not our relationship with God. He's not our president. 
He is not our Prime Minister. He is not our Congress. And He is not our Supreme Court. He is the King, the Monarch, the Ruler. And we are the ruled. He does not have to get our consent to govern us. He does not have to ask our permission to establish the rules. He's the King. Gratefully, we've already recognized that as King, He is also our Father. We know that as King, He is not capricious. His rule is not just based on fancy or whim, but because He is also our Father, it's based on love and care and concern. And we can look at passages like Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 7, also in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. This is Matthew 7, beginning at verse 7. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? This is the kind of king we have. He wants to give us blessings. He wants to help us. But we need to remember that He's the king. He is the ruler. He gets to make the rules. He gets to tell us what to do. And our job is to submit and obey. If we want to improve this relationship, it's very simple, and yet perhaps not so easy. If we want to improve this relationship, we need to obey. He's the king. He's established the rules. He's established the law. It's our job to submit. If we want to improve that relationship, we need to do what he says. How can you call me Lord and not do what I say, Jesus asked. We want to improve that relationship. We need to obey. But we're only going to improve that aspect of our relationship if we improve our faith. We have to improve our faith that God is, in fact, the loving God. That His rule is, in fact, a loving rule, a rule that is for our benefit and for our blessing and for our good. We need to have faith that when God has established His law, what He says is going to be what's best for us. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 makes it very clear. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. If we want to improve our relation as subjects to the King, we've got to be in the Word, learning what kind of God we serve, knowing that His way is best, and therefore submitting to it and obeying. He's our King. We're the subject. Jesus continued, Give us this day our daily bread. He is the provider. We are the dependent. He doesn't rely on us. He didn't create us because He needed us. He doesn't ask for our service because we add anything to Him. You know, you've heard people talk about people missing stuff and having a God-shaped hole in their heart. We need to understand that God does not have a human-shaped hole in His heart. He's the provider. We are the needy, dependent ones. In Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, Beginning at verse 24, Paul said on Mars Hill, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
How often do we take a look at our lives and think about all that we've done? Look at the car that I bought. Look at the house that I built. Look at the clothes that I purchased. Look at the prizes that I've won. Look at the accomplishments that I've made. Look at the mountains that I've climbed. Look at the obstacles that I've overcome. And how many of those would we have done if it hadn't been for God? We can't do anything on our own. We can't even breathe on our own. What would happen if God took away the oxygen that He's given us? What would happen if God took away the muscle strength that we have? Some people have faced those kinds of things. And I think the reason is is that sometimes is that we may learn to be dependent upon God and realize how truly weak and powerless we are by ourselves. He is the provider, and we are the dependent. If we want to improve this relationship with God, we have to come face to face with how truly weak we really are. As Paul pointed out in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7 it says, So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We've got to come face to face with how weak we really are. Make a list of all the things that you can do all by yourself. Then make a list of the things that you can do only because God has given grace to you. It reminds me really of that well-worn story that I'm sure I've used in numerous sermons about the scientists who argue with God that they could produce a better human than he could out of the dirt. And so he took them up on their contest and the scientists reached down to pick up a grab of dirt and God said, no, wait, 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 get your own dirt. Y'all have heard that story before because I know I've told it to you before. What can we do on our own? We can't even get our own dirt. We need to remember what it says in Ephesians 3.20. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. We need to think about the power of God that's been working within us to accomplish all the things that we've done. We need to thank him for that. And we need to pray to him as our provider because we are, in fact, the dependents. Jesus continued, forgive us our debts. God is the creditor and we are the debtor. Interestingly, some translations here just say transgression, but I want you to notice that the meaning of this is far more than just we transgress the law. The point is that when we transgress the law, we owe God something. We remember all the way back in Genesis Chapter 2 and verse 17, God said, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. That's what we owe God for our sins. Our death, Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. Romans 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. That's what we owe God because of our sins. We owe Him our death, but He paid it. He paid the penalty for 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 and 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us, 
Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died and therefore we died through Him. Jesus died, therefore we don't have to. This death, of course, the spiritual death of separation from God. We don't have to endure the eternal torment that comes with true spiritual death because Jesus paid that price for us. We owed Him death. Now we owe Him life. Our life. He is the creditor. We are the debtors. How do we improve that relationship? This is kind of paradoxical. It would seem to us on the surface that if we want to improve this creditor-debtor relationship, what we'd want to do is increase our debt in order to show what a great and awesome and beneficent God we have. But Paul actually dealt with that very specifically in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, Paul said, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We do not improve our relationship with our creditor by getting into more debt. We improve our relationship with God, our creditor, by taking the credit that He's given us and using that to pursue the righteousness that He made us for. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. That's why God has given us credit. And we need to take that credit and use it to pursue those good works. As Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If we want to improve our relationship with God, we need to pursue these good works. That's why He's credited righteousness to us, so that we can be free to pursue righteousness. But Jesus continued in the prayer and said, as we have forgiven our debtors. The thing I want us to recognize here is he says that God's forgiven us because he's forgiven us, we're supposed to forgive others. That demonstrates that he is our example and we are the adherent. We are the one who follows the example that he has set for us. Jesus, in another place, taught this exact same principle using the exact same illustration in Matthew chapter 18 as he told the story of the servant who owed a thousand, or 10,000 talents. And I have a footnote in my Bible that says that a talent was like 20 years worth of wages for one of these day laborers, servants. He owed him 10,000 talents. He came to the king and he begged for more time and the king forgave him. But then the first servant went out and found one who owed him 100 denarii. And a denarii was just a day's wages. So that's a, it was a significant amount, but not to be compared with 10,000 talents. And this first servant, instead of following the example of his king and his master and being forgiving to the one who owed him. He choked him and demanded payment, and when the man begged for mercy, he threw him into debtor's prison. The other servants heard about it. And they went to the king, and the king removed the forgiveness that he had initially given the man. 
said, you should have forgiven your fellow servant as I had forgiven you. You should have followed the example. God is our example. God in the flesh who was on the earth is our example, and we need to follow that example. In John chapter 13, as Jesus washed the disciples' feet, His conclusion of that in verse 12, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And his example there was not merely the washing of feet. His example was being a servant. We need to follow the example of our God. Improving this relationship is no-brainer. It means looking at the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and seeing what they did and how they lived and what they wanted following that, just doing that. We don't have to wait for a thou shalt do it exactly this way. We look at how Jesus lived and let's live that way. When it comes to our spiritual walk with God, Galatians chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 presents it with a great picture. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We must crucify ourselves and follow the example of our God. Jesus continued, and lead us not into temptation. For the purposes of this lesson, let's not get bogged down with the question about why would God ever lead anyone into temptation, but let's just notice from this statement that God is the leader and we are the followers. We're in a wilderness. We're on a safari, if you will. And we need somebody who's been there. We need somebody who knows, who understands, and can guide us through this jungle of life. He's our guide. We are the followers. And as the shepherd's psalm, Psalm 23, points out, He will lead us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. But we have to trust Him. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5 says, Lean not on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord with all your heart. We've got to trust God. When He's leading us. And that actually demonstrates how we improve that relationship. We improve it by trusting Him. By recognizing that He really is a good guy. Instead of thinking that somehow we are the exception. When he says do it this way, we're going to do it that way. Ethan started playing baseball now. And in order to help teach him how to hit, I went to Academy and bought one of these things called a hit-away. It's, it's a pole that has this cord with it and a ball, and you, you swing it around the pole and it wraps it and it comes back around, and then he gets to whack it and it swings around the pole and it comes back around, and he gets to whack it around again. And the harder he hits it, the harder it wraps around, the better it comes back. It's this really neat little invention if we can just figure out how to work it right. But here's the interesting thing. I get him set up. I, I get him standing there right where it is, and I show him, all right, now, Ethan, here's where the ball's going to go. It's going to stop right here. It can't get any closer to you than this point right here because it's attached to this cord, attached to this pole. This ball is not going to hit you. Just let it go by. So I, I rear back, and I get ready to throw that thing, and I slam it as hard as I can, and every time, Ethan jumps away. He doesn't trust the cord, or, or maybe he doesn't trust me. Because the way it looks like that ball is just going to smash him right in the face as it's coming around there. But, of course, the cord grabs it, and it wraps around just like it's supposed to. See, but that's trust. Trust is being able to say, God has said, do it this way. I'll just do it. I believe him. If he says... 
that when I, when, when I know that somebody has something against me, I go to them. He says that if somebody's done something against me, I go to them. I'm going to do it. I'm not the exception. I'm going to do what he says. If he says that I'm supposed to serve, I'm going to serve. If he says that I'm supposed to love, I'm going to love. If he says that I'm supposed to rebuke, I'm going to rebuke. If he says that I'm supposed to teach, I'm going to teach because he is the good guy. And I trust him. His way is right. His way is really what's best for me. The world's way is not best for me. Satan's way is not best for me. God's way is best for me. And so I'm going to do it. Even sometimes when I don't understand it. Even when I can't imagine how possibly God's way would be better. I'm just going to step out and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to take whatever God gives me when I go His way. That's trusting God. That's the relationship of guide and follower. And finally, Jesus said, deliver us from evil. We are the captive. God is the deliverer. We're in a war down here. Satan is the enemy and he holds us captive. He pulls us in to do his will. But God is the one who delivers us from evil and delivers us from the evil one. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 24, Notice what Paul says as he describes the Lord's servant. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Why is the servant not supposed to be quarrelsome? Why is he supposed to be kind? Why is he supposed to be able to teach and patiently endure evil? Why is he supposed to correct the opponents with gentleness? Because as we look at the sinners, we recognize that they're held captive by Satan. Now, don't misunderstand. I recognize sin is our choice. I recognize our responsibility and our accountability for what we have done. But what this passage demonstrates is there is a real sense in which Satan holds us captive. Through sin, he has ensnared us. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. He pointed out that whoever we submit ourselves to obey, we have become slaves of the one whom we obey. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 23, he demonstrated and he talked about the fact that I don't want to do this thing, but I keep doing it. He was enslaved. But notice how he concluded. In verse Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. God is the deliverer through Jesus Christ, and he will set us free from captivity. He'll set us free from our enslavement to sin and Satan. We need to recognize this relationship. This is the climax of the relationships, if you ask me. This is the greatest here, that, that we're held captive. We all know we've been there. Some of us are there. We're growing out of it. By God, our Deliverer. And if we want to improve this relationship, we need to do what Paul talked about there in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, after he had talked about the enslavement to sin, in verse 2 of Romans 8, he says, The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. If we want to improve this relationship with God as our deliverer, we need to stop walking in the flesh and start walking in the Spirit. We need to take our mind off the things of the flesh and put our mind on the things of the Spirit. We need to quit being guided by the flesh through lust and be guided by the fruit of the Spirit. We need to recognize that freedom and deliverance is not an excuse or a justification for continuing in the paths of the flesh. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, Paul also wrote, making similar points to Romans 7 and 8, You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Deliverance does not mean that we get to do what we want because, oh, I'm forgiven. Deliverance means that I pursue the things of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. As Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We need to sow to the Spirit. We need to quit sowing to the flesh. We need to quit seeding the ground for our fleshly lusts and passions. And instead, seed it for pursuing the fruit of the Spirit. God is our Deliverer. Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in Heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What a great prayer. And what amazing pictures of our relationship with God it provides. You know, the more I learn about God and His Word, the more I realize that He really is up in heaven, just like a father with a baby, holding Him up, pointing to Himself and saying, Father, Father, realizing that we don't get it at all, but knowing that we will, and being patient with us as we learn more about Him and grow more like Him, and improve our relationships with Him. Let's keep all these pictures in our mind. This is what God is. He is our Father. He is our God. He is our King. He is our example. He is our provider. He is our creditor and redeemer. He is our God. He is our deliverer. Can you agree with me that we serve an amazing and awesome God? That right there is one of those points where we're supposed to hear amen from lots of people. Okay, can we agree that we serve an amazing and awesome God? Thank you. Absolutely. What a great God that we serve.